I'm Chris Reback. This is Strategic Conversations, brought to you by the BCG Henderson Institute. You know the line from the old Sam Cooke song, don't know much biology. Well, if you're looking for strategy to survive in business today, you might want to learn about it, and quickly. A recent Harvard Business Review piece laid out the case. It's titled, The Biology of Corporate Survival, Numbers Explain Why It Matters. After reviewing the histories of more than 30,000 U.S. public firms over 50 years, the authors found that businesses are disappearing faster than ever before. Corporations have a one in three chance of being delisted in the next five years because of bankruptcy, liquidation, M&A, and more. That's six times the rate from 40 years ago. In fact, they found that corporations die on average at a younger age than their employees. So what's a corporation to do to survive? And what's biology got to do with it? Dr. Simon Levin is the George M. Moffat Professor of Biology at Princeton University. He's also a 2016 winner of the National Medal of Science, our nation's highest scientific honor. Martin Reeves is a Boston Consulting Group Senior Partner and Managing Director and Global Head of the BCG Henderson Institute. He's also co-author of the award-winning management book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. Reeves and Levin together researched the intersection of business strategy, biology, and complex systems. Their conclusion, companies are identical to biological species in an important respect, and the principles that confer robustness in these systems, whether natural or man-made, are directly applicable to business. Martin, Simon, thanks for joining me. Simon, I'll start with you since we have a rule that we always start with National Medal of Science winners. As part of your studies on ecological systems, you have looked at flocks of birds, schools of fish, plants, infectious diseases. At the risk of setting myself up here, what in the world do flocks of birds and infectious diseases have to do with financial and economic systems? Well, I'm fascinated and excited by the unity of science and how lessons that you can learn in one context can be extrapolated to others with great benefit. My colleagues and I first became concerned about financial systems in early 2008, and actually, I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years before that. We thought that the financial system was overly connected. And based on our experience with ecological systems, that suggests that they were at systemic risk with the likelihood of contagion and collapse. We all know what happened. Well, disease systems, as you mentioned, show the same potential. So do forest fires. Modularity in fire breaks protects systems against collapse. And evolution's found that modularity has arisen in genotypic and phenotypic architecture as well. Modular components allow systems to be reconfigured quickly. And more generally, in thinking about flocks of birds and schools of fish, one thinks about a large number of independent agents who come together with collective consequences for the whole. It's not so different than an economy or a stock market in which individual actions lead to macroscopic outcomes that then feed back to affect individual behaviors. So that's what got me interested in thinking about what we call complex adaptive systems, systems made up of lots of individual agents who go about their business without concern for the whole, but with great consequences for the whole, and that ultimately feeds back to affect them. 
Yeah, we, we, we will certainly need to get a, a real clear baseline description of complex adaptive systems. They, they obviously form the, you know, the, the, just the, the framework and the base for, uh, the principles and the lessons that, that you both figured out and, and have come across for businesses and, and principles that are, that are fascinating. But Martin, in, you know, you listen to what Simon is talking about. How did the personal connection between the two of you come about and how did you both connect and, and figure out there's some real lessons here in particular? Particularly, Martin, given your perspective with uh, you know global companies and strategy and and global leadership, how did you two make that connection? And say, wait a minute, we we've got some lessons here uh, and an interesting storyline that that could really help corporations around the world. Uh, yeah, well, I was uh, working on this uh, uh, book that just came out, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy, uh, which is a is a is a fresh take on how businesses should think about strategy. And some of the themes I was grappling with were uncertainty, complexity diversity, um, if you like, uh, things that are beyond the reach of uh, how we typically think about strategy, namely as, as an exercise in planning. And I happened to stumble across uh, a piece that Simon wrote called Ecology for Bankers, which was about precisely what he just mentioned, namely the uh, fragility of the financial system and what uh, ecosystems thinking uh, could tell us about um, what the problem was and what to do about it. Uh, so I immediately contacted Simon. We spent some time together. Uh, that turned into a, uh, a multi-year relationship where we've been working on a series of fascinating themes like uh, longevity, uh, resilience, and biological concepts of a strategy that's been a really fascinating journey. Had you thought about it in that way before, or when you saw the the outlines of what Simon was writing, did, did that light bulb go off in your head and you were like, wait a minute, this is a really fascinating framework uh, for, for people that I talk to around the world? Well, I'm originally a biologist myself, so it immediately resonated. Um, so what I saw basically was that the um, the variety and the uh, creativity uh, of the concepts of strategy that we see in biology um, was, you know, much broader than the sort of fairly mechanistic concept that we've uh, inherited from the early 60s in business. And I thought it was uh, very applicable and very powerful to the complex times in which we live. So, so Simon, uh, if you could, complex adaptive systems, what are they in uh, the biological uh, world? And then how do we think about them in terms of the business world? What, what are complex adaptive systems? Okay, well, complex adaptive systems, actually a concept that didn't come out of biology, but immediately resonated um, with me because of the perspective I brought from biology. It's an idea largely due to John Holland, uh, which simply reflects the fact that many systems that we deal with, and this can be everything from simple physical systems, complex materials, up to our societies and the biosphere, are made up of a lot of individual agents looking for food, uh, interacting with other individuals in ways that benefit them best, not so different than what individuals are doing in the marketplace or companies are doing as they pursue their agendas. But put them all together when you have tens of thousands, millions, even billions of individual agents that are interacting with each other, and we see what are called emergent phenomena. We see things that we never expected to happen. We see the the fascinating movements of the flocks of birds. Uh, We see those frightening movements in the stock market. Uh, We see... uh, uh, wars arising at the international level. These are often unintended consequences of the collection action, actions, collective actions of lots of individuals. 
And um, ultimately, those emergent outcomes, which can include sudden shifts uh, in those systems, like the collapse of a stock market, like the eutrophication of a lake, ultimately feed back to affect the individuals who, whose collective behavior gave rise to it. And so we have a complex system, and we call it an adaptive system, not because the system's adapting, but because the individual agents are adapting. And Martin, is, is the case for complex adaptive systems, is it, is it more urgent Today, as you look back historically, I mean, were, were, did businesses always face complex adaptive systems or um, because of, uh, you know, harsher environments, less predictable environments, et cetera? Is it, is it more, uh, you know, is it more heightened today and, and therefore, you know, a, a, a strategy to address it is more relevant today? Um, how, how do you look at, at, at the kind of the history of complex adaptive systems and their particular relevance in today's business world? I, I think it's, uh, it is definitely more heightened today. Um, it's, uh, it, it's conventional that all business books since the beginning of time begin with the first chapter that asserts that the world is faster moving and more complex than ever before. Um, but if you measure that objectively, which we uh, did for the purposes of the, of the book, um, then since about the uh, early to mid 80s, uh, we see a, a massive takeoff in, in dynamism, the speed of change of business, um, in unpredictability, and also in complexity in terms of the variety of environments that, uh, that companies face. And uh, we see a very la- alarming statistic uh, associated with that in uh, the work that Simon and I did on uh, corporate longevity. Um, so if you Look at these 35,000 companies, all, essentially all U.S. public companies of, over the last 65 years. We find that the five-year mortality rate, the probability that a company won't be around as a listed company in five years' time, is something like 5% in 1960, and that, and that number now stands at, uh, at, at, at 32%. Um, so that really is uh, an incredible uh, longevity risk um, of, of corporations um, you know, pursuing their uh, their, their short-term profitability needs. Um, so uh, really, definitely some, some increased urgency here. And we also see that in the, in the language that businesses uh, use, actually. I mean, one of the most uh, popular recent words in business is, in fact, um, ecosystem. And we see many platform businesses, uh, businesses like Alibaba and uh, Apple and, and Amazon, that, in fact, are uh, communities of uh, many thousands or millions of of, of buyers and sellers forming a mutually uh, ad- adaptive ecosystem. Um, so biology, biology definitely has uh, something to tell us about uh, about this. You know, this concept of short-term profitability needs, which is a, a theme, uh, obviously, in the, the principles that you outline and, and is one of the key tensions we, we all know. It, when you kind of have that in the back of your mind and then you talk to a CEO and you mention that, you know, the statistics and what the research found, do, 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 do they – do they kind of sit up and get it? Do they do they see that this can you know that this is is very you know relevant to them, or is there a is there a, a blindness perhaps to one's own survivability or mortality you know potential? And and do you get a little bit of well you know I understand Martin that that's happened throughout time, but you know that's not going to happen to me. I think um, traditionally the CEO and strategy uh, in business focuses on the question of uh, how good is my game? How competitive is my game? 
Um, and uh, that, that's a question that we addressed in our book as to um, whether we need a new concepts for dealing with, uh, with, with that question. Um, but I think the, um, the numbers on longevity show that, in fact, we need to equally focus on a second question, which is how long will my game last? And uh, when shown the evidence, um, uh, absolutely, CEOs uh, sit up and want to discuss um, this idea of resilience and robustness, namely, uh, what can they do to make sure that they are not only generating profits and being competitive in the short term, uh, but that their game uh, lasts? Uh, because uh, uh, you know, five years is, is a very short space of time. Um, if we were thinking about 30 years, perhaps it would be, you know, somewhat academic. But uh, the prospect of a 30% probability of not being around in, in five years' time is enough to make any CEO sit up and get interested in the concept of robustness and resilience. I think. So let's get into the – you guys outlined six principles that can help make complex adaptive systems in business robust. Um, three of them are structural and three are managerial. Um, let's get into a, a, a couple of them. Um, the first one that you, that you talk about or one of the ones you talk about is uh, heterogeneity, um, the diversity in people, ideas, innovations, and endeavors. Um, Simon, uh, what does the flu virus teach us about the importance of heterogeneity in our business systems? Well, as, as you imply, influenza has been around for centuries, millennia indeed, despite the fact that once you get a particular strain of flu, you are essentially protected against it for the rest of your life. And indeed, flu strains come and go, and we probably never see those strains come back again. But influenza has survived and is robust exactly because the individual strains are not robust. It teaches us about the value of exploration, of exploration into the diversity that's available through mutations to influenza A, and it teaches us about the value of adaptive and flexible uh, rather than rigid in the way one responds to challenges. In, in terms of the business environment, uh, one can look to Fuji Film, which is a great example of employing heterogeneity. Not only did they embrace digital, but they expanded it to pharmaceuticals and cosmetics with some failures, but failures are a mark of success. If you never fail, you're probably not exploring enough. Meanwhile, Kodak, which had a much uh, more rigid strategy, went bankrupt. So that teaches us a lot, I think, about the, the value of heterogeneity. All of evolutionary change is about the trade-offs between natural selection and forces that that produce variability in the systems, mutation and sexual recombination, the constant reassortment, the constant variation provides the adaptive capacity of the system. The, um, the vertebrate immune system is another example where great heterogeneity is available uh, so that the immune, or, or immune responses can be adaptive to whatever the particular challenges are. So, so Martin, I, you know, as an individual, am you know grateful for my biological heterogeneity, and and perhaps then, therefore, you know, going off of what Simon was saying, my ability, I hope, to fight off disease. Um, in the business world, that's got to create uh, some real tension because heterogeneity and and diversity in 
business purpose or business execution must go directly contrary to you know the pressures to um, become more efficient and to streamline and to you know get out of uh, you know this is we, we should not be be delving into areas that are outside of our core business I mean we hear this all of the time how, how do you think about that tension how do you talk to sea uh, uh, level executives globally about that tension and and the importance of heterogeneity well, in a, in a sense, uh, the, uh, the heart of strategy is, um, is, is a question which is, um, you know, how can we both run the business efficiently and also in a changing environment reinvent the business? So in the short term, um, always the, uh, the, the highest gains are to perfecting the current model, and, and that usually has to do with efficiency and the elimination of variance and uh, the elimination of the distractions of diversification. Uh, but in the long term, this, of course, is a recipe for disaster because uh, uh, no, no variance means no learning, means no adaptive capacity, means a complete inability to reinvent the business. And while that may be okay in a stationary environment, that's very far from the uh, reality of today. Um, unfortunately, the uh, efficiency, uh, short-term efficiency, is much easier to measure uh, than uh, variance and, and evolvability. So the natural bias is to is to emphasize that uh, but one of the things we wanted to do in the article was to point out the importance of this uh, reinventing the business aspect of the game and therefore the importance of heterogeneity and the the other five principles that we proposed the next one of which and, and, and I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, you know about that measurement because you're you're you know obviously correct on it um, the you know measurement drives so much of business uh, short-term efficiencies become as you say uh, much easier to measure and so then the discipline and buy-in I would think to you know be able to look at the the longer road and and you know the the long run um, there's got to be a great deal of pressure because that that I assume becomes um, harder to measure and and so that's maybe one thing that we can discuss in, in this conversation. I think um, most of us are well aware of, of the values of planning for a rainy day. Uh, we certainly do that in our in our own investments. Few of us would put all of our money uh, in a particular category, even if it were, uh, or in a particular stock, even if it were paying well at present, because we know that conditions are going to change and we need to buy some sort of insurance. We need to spread the risks. Um, but we really need to be applying the same principles um, in the way we run businesses, in the way we run research foundations. One always has the trade-off between the exploitation of a known strategy and exploration of strategies that are going to be good for tomorrow. And um, it's all related to how much we discount the future, but in general, I, what we're saying in the article is that there's importance in continually innovating because whatever works today is not going to work tomorrow. And um, in, in the same way one diversifies stocks, one should be diversifying strategies in the marketplace and indeed diversifying what kinds of talents one hires into the company. And on, on that note, uh, Martin, another one of the uh, structural principles that you guys identify is redundancy. Uh, what do you mean by that? Redundancy means um, if, if something fails, uh, something is there to take your place, its place. Um, and uh, so in other words, the system is not 
fragile to um, to one component being knocked out. And um, a great example of this in in business is the uh, redundancy in the uh, in the Toyota, uh, the auto manufacturer's uh, supply base. Um, so they had a uh, a factory fire in one of their suppliers uh, that essentially completely wiped out the ability to produce a, a critical component called a P valve. And um, they had uh, such a collaborative uh, ecosystem with their suppliers that the other suppliers were able to uh, step in, even though they had no history of uh, producing this part, and uh, collaboratively reallocate the production and retool and uh, get back to business with, uh, with, with minimal downtime. So that's an exercise in functional redundancy, the ability to, uh, in this case, retask production from one need to another to cover a catastrophe on, uh, on one component. Um, there's a contrasting example uh, in, in, in Europe uh, with the telecom supplier Ericsson, uh, where one of its uh, suppliers was, uh, was knocked out in a similar sort of fashion, um, where they, they lost uh, in a tremendous amount of uh, uh, production and revenues um, uh, to the point that it, it, it actually threatened the, uh, uh, the, the viability of the company uh, due to uh, a lack of this property of uh, redundancy. So again, there's a tension between the short-term efficiency here, because redundancy is, um, you know, by its very nature, the word uh, signals um, in inefficiency or, uh, or duplication, uh, but the long-term value of that redundancy in making the system more robust to shocks. And beyond the structural uh, components and, and the importance of uh, creating those, you know, leveraging these principles in order to, uh, you know, manage our way through these complex adaptive systems, uh, there are also managerial principles. So not only in the way one designs and, and continues to uh, evolve the structure of one's business, but also how one manages it. Um, and the, the first one that you mention. Uh, Martin, is expect surprise, uh, but reduce uncertainty. Um, that sounds very similar to, you know, uh, raising kids, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but how does, how does it apply uh, in the business world? Well, especially in the realm of technology, um, the world is, is, is really quite difficult to, to, to forecast. So one is um, definitely better off uh, being flexible and adapting to events as they unfold and uh, expecting surprise rather than expecting that your your plans will unfold um, in the, in the foreseen fashion. Um, at the same time, um, one can protect against uh, negative plausible outcomes by thinking through them in advance and uh, taking out some sort of insurance uh, ag against them. And we have a a very good example of that: uh, the company Essilor, the uh, optics, the lens manufacturer, who essentially uh, realizes that it probably won't be able to. Uh, foresee uh, all of the technologies that it will need to keep its business healthy, um, but at the same time is scanning for technologies which are potentially disruptive and uh, deliberately acquiring them at a very early stage uh, in order to, um, if you like, ensure themselves against the possibility that this technology would, uh, would grow and make their business uh, ob obsolete. Um, so in the in the article, we describe how they do that, how they do that scanning process for uh, potential threats to their uh, technology strategy. Um, so it's an exercise in alertness, um, adaptability, and the application of a precautionary principle. Um, but if you look very closely, it's not an exercise in uh, single point uh, uh, forecasts and planning.
And for any managers or, or C-suite executives who are listening to this, Martin, is that a skill or is that a mindfulness capability? I mean, is, is that is the ability? I mean, you're talking about a real, you know, ability to be scanning and interpreting and and analyzing really continually. Is that something that one has or one doesn't have? Or can one do, in, have you found over time? Can, can one kind of uh, adopt that type of mindfulness? One of my favorite sayings is that change of business always needs to occur twice, once in reality and once in the mind, uh, because if it doesn't happen in the mind, you will not make the changes required in reality. So I think it is actually uh, uh, both, Chris. Um, uh, and in our book, we, we, we essentially boil down the three capabilities that, um, uh, that, that companies, large companies, established companies need to uh, adopt um, in order to be successful in the way that we're suggesting. One of them is the, is the, is the capability of uh, of adaptation, uh, which essentially is the capability of disciplined experimentation, uh, the ability to have uh, devolved risk-taking and innovation and the flexibility to remobilize around the things that are successful and to move away from the things that are unsuccessful. The second uh, is, is the capability of shaping the environment um, so that one is not always a passive recipient of change, but one is actually shaping one's environment. And the third one is this uh, skill of um, we call ambidexterity, which is the ability to embrace the paradox of both running the business and reinventing the business, even though on any given day those principles will, uh, will, will, will always be in tension. So I think it's both um, a mindset, a way of thinking about business, and also a, a set of capabilities and mechanisms that need to be built. Chris, I'd like to um, add something about the issue of surprise, uh, which is that biological systems have had to deal of course, with this phenomenon over and over again, um, surprises in some ways the most predictable part of systems. Um, we know that we're going to be assaulted with a variety of pathogens, bacteria, viruses, fungi, etc., but we don't know what they're going to be specifically or when they're going to hit us, and the vertebrate immune system is a fantastic example of an evolutionary advance to deal with, with this, a, a system that, that provides predictable or, um, early responses and then adaptive later responses. And um, that's how businesses need to be run. That's how regulatory systems need to be run, a hierarchy of responses to help deal with surprise. And to uh, and to learn along the way. Really, as you say that, Simon, and as you both describe these these principles and and the skills that are required, um, you you can really start to. I could almost hear, almost in a sense, a you know. HR leaders um, listening to this and really thinking and, and, and rethinking the types of uh, ways that they need to evaluate what makes a, a, a great leader because you're talking about things. I mean, you, Martin, your phrase, you know, the need to embrace paradox and that component of ambidex, uh, ambidexterity. I mean, what can what, what is more difficult that for most for many business leaders than the ability for many you know most human beings than the ability to embrace paradox. Um, and I just think you're hitting on so much of, of, you know, when we think about what makes a great uh, manager and a great business leader, um, you know, it, it's, it's becoming much harder to, to be one as I think more about, uh, you know, what you guys have found. Um, relatedly, you, you outlined 
Um, you know, another principle that to, you know, the need to create feedback loops and adaptive mechanisms. And one of the components that, of this that you, that you wrote, Martin, was that uh, leaders need to engage with those employees to discover innovations that can improve robustness. I, I, I'm curious what you find, because I personally am endlessly shocked um, at how little this happens, the leaders engaging employees and, and asking real questions and tough questions and trying to real un, really understand what's happening right there at those front lines. Am, am I just jaded? Do you see it happening more? Or, or what, how do you talk to leaders globally about that? Um, yes, I think you're, you're talking about one of the three capabilities I outlined, which is this capability of adaptation. And um, it, it, it's... Uh, it can be hard for a large company because large companies tend to be quite uh, structured and quite uh, top-down and quite um, introverted, whereas uh, adapting to a changing environment requires a great deal of decentralized experimentation. It requires multiplicity, different people trying things at different times. It requires them to be trying those things in response to changes in the external environment, and therefore it's not a top-down thing, it's a bottom-up thing. And then uh, it also requires... Um, a feedback to the organization as a whole, right? Because if, if one uh, employee is incented to try something and that thing works, that knowledge then has to be codified and shared and has to attract uh, resources, uh, which is an exercise in, uh, in knowledge management and an exercise, exercise in, uh, in organizational flexibility. Um, now, small companies uh, do this, I think, quite um, intuitively. Um, the challenge is to do it uh, systematically in the context of a, of a large company. And indeed, that is the, uh, the fifth principle, the adoption of feedback loops and uh, adaptive uh, innovation mechanisms. One, of course, also has to be careful that the feedback loops are not too strong. Uh, overreaction can destabilize the system as surely as underreaction. And the, one of the most famous examples is of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, in which the feedbacks essentially led to the collapse of the bridge. That can happen um, as well. Um, with an overreaction in the management of a company, one needs to preserve some flexibility um, within the You're structure. You're absolutely right, Simon. Yeah, um, we, you know, our analysis says that um, these dangers are applied differentially to according to company size. Namely, um, often smaller companies can be excessively exploratory. They can have great ideas that they never really monetize, and therefore, essentially, they run out of cash. Um, so that's an example of, you know, too much feedback, too much sensitivity to, to change and new possibilities. Um, uh, on the whole, larger companies tend to be the opposite end, uh, end of the spectrum, which is they, they rarely overreact, but they frequently uh, underreact and uh, over-rely on the business models and uh, formulae that have been the historic basis for, the, for, the, for their success. On that point, Martin and, and Simon, and, and just being mindful of time and wanting to really, you know, get get to the to the heart of things, as I'm as I'm reading what you write, and I think about the you know practical application of it, how you know how I, as a manager in a business line, uh, or a or a you know executive, you know, running a region or or even a global business, can apply these. I, so many of these of the principles that you advocate. Um, feel like they go uh, against the very results that seem to get people, individuals, promoted. You know, some of the boss, I cut a redundant system, or boss, I found ways to tighten connections between two groups and increase efficiency.
efficiency or boss, we've, we, we, we have not had a misstep, um, on this project in six months, right? Advocating the exactly the opposite of what you talk about, the importance of, of failing and, and the, the phrase right. that you quote, the failing fast. I mean, these are all, you know, it feels almost like all of the things that get one promoted as an individual might also be the things that kill your business. And so um, at the heart, how can that tension of self-preservation versus company preservation, how does that ever get reconciled? Well, you've, uh, you've put your finger right on the complex adaptive system uh, part of the, of the problem. Uh, individual members of a company, people working for the company, have a different discount rate, a, a, a different utility function than, um, for example, shareholders in the company or the interest of the company as a whole. They need to produce results over the short run, and long-term survival um, doesn't factor into their decision-making, and that's why we're seeing the phenomenon uh, we're, we're seeing now of uh, shorter lifespans of the companies. Uh, so um, ultimately, the st- those who are concerned about the long-term survival of the of the company and the long-term profitability have to put into the place ways to uh, reward uh, risky thinking that um, is more likely to contribute to the long-term profitability of the company. Martin, I mean, my question to you is, you know, going off of what Simon is saying, um, so so is that the fix or, or what is the fix? Over the long run, how can anyone keep their businesses from dying? Um, well, I think you have to you know, balance the short-term view with the long-term view. And so you start with the top of the corporation, the, the board of directors, the CEO has a responsibility for not only optimizing the business, but actually having the business um, have some uh, longevity. So um, the sort of principles and the, the implied questions behind them uh, in our article, um, those need to be applied as tests to the strategy, as well as the more uh, familiar financial outcomes and productivity metrics, uh, which measure essentially, you know, short, the, sh- the short run success of a business model. Um, then in terms of, you know, cascading that concern down the organization um, to people that, as, as Simon says, may have a... Um, a, a lower discount rate. Um, uh, uh, one can do it in a number of ways. One can do it with separation. Um, in other words, we can have a bunch of people responsible for optimizing today's business and another bunch of people responsible for reinventing the business, um, the, the, the R&D department or, or, or whatever. Another way of doing it is with, uh, with metrics. Um, so the, uh, the, the 3M company um, innovated a very sort of interesting sort of metric, um, which is that one's the profitability that the manager is held accountable for should not only be achieved in aggregate, but that a certain proportion of it, uh, let's say 5%, uh, needs to come from things that are new. Uh, and in that way, you hold them accountable for uh, for both sides of the, the paradox. They're thinking about the short term um, and, and the long term, uh, for example. Um, one can also, of course... Um, you know, reward the sorts of behaviors that we're, uh, we're, we're implying here, um, uh, both uh, financially and, and also in terms of making role models of, of people that exhibit, uh, exhibit these behaviors. Um, so ultimately, it really does come down to, uh, to people and, and culture and, uh, and, and, and leadership. And these are the keys to applying the principles we talked about in the article and achieving uh, longevity that uh, beats the uh, uh, ever-testing um, and declining odds of success. 
People, culture, leadership, important qualities indeed if you want your company to beat the odds. The Harvard Business Review article is The Biology of Corporate Survival. Martin Reeves is global head of the BCG Henderson Institute. He's also co-author of the award-winning management book, Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. Dr. Simon Levin is a professor of biology at Princeton University. He's also a 2016 winner of the National Medal of Science, our nation's highest scientific honor. Martin, Simon, thank you so much for your time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Strategic Conversations brought to you by the BCG Henderson Institute.